All right. Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke 22, where we're going to be talking about pray to escape temptation. And let's begin with prayer. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you that we can come here to this place to worship you. We thank you for all those who make that possible. Those who come here early, the sound people, the uh, those in the band, those in the choir, Father, uh, people who come to set things up, the ushers and so many others who work and labor to make our time of worship um, enjoyable and pleasurable and non-distracting. Father, as we come to you this morning, we think of many who are hurting in the body, those whose uh, or have physical ailments, some um, who like Dorothy Swickard and uh, are just on the threshold of glory, it seems. And Father, we think of, uh, I think Lloyd Poindexter is uh, having some struggles and Wes Stone, Father, and uh, we think of Marcel Vercuter and Father, others who, who are really um, struggling physically. Father, we just pray your abundant grace upon them that you would bless them and encourage them. And may they see their trials as opportunities to give you glory and seek ways to give you glory, even though they may uh, just be struggling. And Father, we just ask that you would just give them and their families mercy. Father, as we come to your word and we look at the subject of prayer, may we all be challenged in our own life that we might give you glory in these things because we know it is so important. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, prayer is talking to God. If, uh, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, God spoke to me in prayer. Usually um, that doesn't happen um, in a literal way. You don't actually hear the voice of God. Usually they, they talk about God meant brought a scripture to mind or they thought of somebody they needed to help or whatever is not real communication. If you want God to speak to you, this is his word and he speaks to us through his word. But when you want to speak to God, that's what prayer is for. You commune with God, you speak to him through prayer. So prayer is talking to God. And we know that the scriptures say we are to, you know, pray in all things and about all things and without ceasing and, and give praise to God. There's so many scriptures that tell us that we are to be praying people. Well, when a Christian is born again by the Holy Spirit, really the natural response is to pray. There is this instant relationship that is established when we come to know Christ. Um, if you don't know Christ and you're sitting there thinking, you know, what does that mean when people talk about having a personal relationship with God? I mean, what are they actually talking about? And does it talk about, well, does that mean getting to know God? No. Does that mean knowing things about God? No. Well, what does it actually mean? It means having a relationship, a personal relationship with God. It's like you have a personal relationship with a wife or a close friend or a brother or a sister. You talk with them. They talk with you. You have a relationship. And that is really what happens when you come to the Lord. You remember when Saul was miraculously confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus and he was struck by blind. The first thing that he did was pray, Lord, who are you? And later on, when God sent Ananias to restore Paul's vision in Acts chapter 9, verse 11, we read this. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. 
for he is praying. That is just the normal thing that happens when you come to know the Lord. A prayer just becomes part of your, your thing. It's what you do. You talk to God. You're aware about God, that he's around, that he exists. And so if you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, my question to you is, do you pray? Do you pray? Now, I just want to give you a little diagnostic test here. And this is just for your own benefit so you can consider your own life. Um, I want you to think back to last week. Now, if you're thinking, no, not last week, that was an especially bad week um, than the week before that. And if you're still thinking, but not that week either, then you have troubles. Um, but I'm just going to ask you a series of questions. You answer them in your mind. Because really, prayer is one of the chief indicators that a person knows God. First, did you spend time in prayer every day in communion with God? Secondly, did you find yourself praying throughout the day, not just during emergencies, but thinking about God? Talking to about, about God when you're driving, when you're at the grocery store, when you're doing dishes. Is God just there and it's like somebody on a cell phone yet it's just stuck to your head and you can talk to him whenever you want. He's always waiting there to listen and so you do. Do you make it a habit to pray before eating as the word of God instructs or do you only do that when other people are watching? Do you weekly participate in corporate prayer with other saints? When you pray, do you know and feel that God is listening and he cares and he wants to answer your prayers? Six, do trials enhance your prayer life or do trials detract from your prayer life? Do trials drive you to God or do trials drive you to trust in yourself and forget about God? Do blessings cause you you as a first impulse to praise God and thank God or do you just say great and you just gobble up the blessing and not thank him J.C. Ryle in his most excellent little book called the call to prayer says quote I do not deny that a person may pray without heart and without sincerity I do not for a moment pretend to say that the mere fact of people praying proves everything about their soul As in every other part of religion, so also in this, there may be deception and hypocrisy. But this I do say, that not praying is a clear proof that a person is not yet a true Christian. They cannot really feel their sins. They cannot love God. They cannot feel themselves a debtor to Christ. They cannot long after holiness. They cannot desire heaven. They have yet to be born again. They have yet to be made a new creature. They may boast confidently of election and grace and faith, hope and knowledge, and deceive ignorant people. But you may rest assured it is all vain talk if they do not pray. End quote. And it's true that unbelievers during a time of trial will, will pray to the true God. It is true that pagans will pray to their false gods. Even an atheist, if you pitch them off a cliff, will cry out, Lord Jesus, save me on the way down. Unbelievers pray. But their prayers are selfish and self-motivated. They're not praying for the glory of God. They don't want God's will. They want God to do their will. And of course, their prayers are not answered, the scriptures say. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. 
But when a believer prays, it's a whole different thing. Because a believer knows God. A believer is born of God. A believer is a child of God. You know, we're experiencing now, our kids are getting older and they're gone a lot. And when they come home and they want to talk, it's like, yeah. It's like, yeah, oh good, you're coming over to see us and talk to us. And we like that. Well, that's how God is. He, he wants to talk to you. He wants to hear from you. And he wants to bless you as you pray. It just so happens that Luke emphasizes prayer more than the other gospels uh, in this portion of the passion narrative. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Believe me, there are things here that we could run around and deal with. But I want to just focus everything this morning on prayer. Because that is Luke's emphasis. Now, you have to remember where we left off last time. Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples. He instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas has left to betray him. The disciples then argue about who is the greatest. Jesus has predicted his death. Jesus has corrected them because they have um, been arguing about who's the greatest. And he thought, well, let me just show you what I mean. And he gets a towel and he washes all their feet as an example for them to follow. And and so all of this has happened. It's still Passover. We did skip ahead because when Jesus uh, was talking to them, they all began to boast that they would never leave him or forsake him. And so I wanted to go ahead, and we did. We skipped ahead in Luke a little bit to see that they all left him and forsook him. Especially Peter, who boasted most loudly, denied him three times, even with cursings and oaths. And so this is where we're at. We're going back again into the upper room right before they leave. And we're going to discover what happens at the end of this night. So look in your Bibles at Luke 22 and follow along as I read verses 35 through 46. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money, belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that that, that this which is written must be fulfilled. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And he began in being in agony. He was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, from this text, I just extracted seven principles of prayer, which you can apply to your own life to just have a closer communion with God so that God can be glorified in your prayer life and so that you will be blessed. And the first is pray and be responsible. 
Look at verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money, belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. For instance, in Luke chapter nine, verse three, when Jesus was sending them out, uh, he said, take nothing for your journey, neither staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Why? Because Jesus provided for them. Jesus was here present. He was the great shepherd. He was shepherding his sheep and he provided for them. So he said, when you go out, believe me, you're going to be taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. Don't take a bunch of stuff with you. I'm here and you're going to be taken care of. Look at verse 36. And he said to them, but now, so things are going to change. Things are going to change. And this, we know they're still clueless about Jesus's imminent death. They're not, they realize that something is changing here because the text says they were in sorrow. And I think it's a sorrow because they realized Jesus was leaving them for some reason. But here he says, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along Likewise, also a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Now, I just want you to know this verse, especially the last part of the verse, sell your coat and buy a sword. Commentators do not like that. I mean, I I was just smiling as I tried to imagine the gymnastics that they commentators try to get around to explain away why jesus would never say get a sword i mean they had two swords which means they had been carrying swords jesus was not against it obviously they had them so a lot of people though just think it just seems so wrong for christians to have a sword have a gun have a compound bow or an axe you know i mean what is it you can't have any cooking knives you know because they're sharp you know there's just this thought that it's it's unworthy of god that you might have a lethal weapon now there are a couple different kinds of swords and one kind of sword is uh is a smaller uh sword um uh, still a lethal weapon uh, and another sword a great broad sword jesus is speaking of a smaller sword here but it's interesting that out of all the things he says he puts emphasis on get the sword I mean, you have to admit it. It says it right there. You know, if you need something, I mean, even sell your coat to get one. Now, granted, they've tried to interpret this thing to say, listen, if you don't have a money belt or bag, then sell your coat and get a sword. Or, you know, they they try and like get away from this because surely he doesn't actually want to get a sword. And we'll talk about this more. But notice the three things. One, take a money belt and... uh, why? Well, because there's not going to be any more miraculous feasts, you know, where he feeds the 5,000. They're going to have to produce cash if they want to eat. They want to stay things. They're going to need money for provisions, which mean they're also going to have to work. Granted, eventually, as churches get planted and established, then those churches will begin to support them. But before that time, they're on their own. Now, that doesn't mean that God's sovereignty and providence won't be working to provide for them through other people sometimes. But Jesus says, listen, things are going to be a little different now. So take your money belt with you. Second, they were to take along a bag or a knapsack uh, so they could put food and clothing in it. They're going to need extra stuff to take, you know, pack a suitcase. In other words, Um, take take your provisions with you in a sack because you're going to be needing that because, again, I won't be here to be with you. And then third, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. The word, again, for sword is speaking of a lethal weapon. We know that because if you just look at the occurrences, uh, like Luke 21, 24, it talks about those who fall by the edge of the sword. 
Or in Acts chapter 12, 12, it is the weapon that was used to put uh, James to death. And so we're talking about a lethal weapon. Now, some have said, no, it couldn't be that because in, if you look at verses 49 and 50, Peter takes out his sword, tries to cut off Malchus's head, nips his ear off. Jesus sticks it back on. And of course, um, Jesus says, put away your sword. So he couldn't be saying we actually need swords. Well, that's a whole different situation. Jesus is still with them. And Jesus is giving himself over to the hand of evil men. So, of course, he doesn't want the disciples to all get in a hand-to-hand combat with the mob to prevent him from accomplishing redemption for mankind. So that's a pretty weak argument. Others have said, well, you know, we know that uh, later on he talks about uh, it is enough, um, which means quit being so silly, um, which, you know, it could be translated uh, enough of that. But still, he doesn't say you don't need a sword, which he could have very easily said. And so what is the whole point here? What is the whole point? I think the whole point is this, is that you need to be ready to protect yourself. You know, the redneck interpretation is get yourself a 40 caliber Glock 22 and a bunch of other weapons and hide in northern Idaho. Um, but um, I don't think that's what he's saying either. He's not saying go in the offensive and attack anybody. He's not saying don't submit to the governing authorities, even if they're wicked, because uh, the scriptures tell us to submit to the governing authorities. But when you're out and about, just just so you know, I'm not going to be with you to protect you. And so be ready to defend yourself against wicked men. I think that's all he's saying because things are changing. And then he says in verse 37, for I tell you that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. This is the quote from Isaiah 53 verse 12. Now, what's cool about this, he says, he goes on to say for that which is, uh, refers to me has its fulfillment. Uh, What's neat about this is Isaiah 53, the Jews have had a problem with it. Because it seems in one way that this suffering servant is the Messiah and the ruler. But in Isaiah 53, it's so clear that whoever the suffering servant is, he dies for the sins as a sacrifice for other people. It's unavoidable. And they say, well, it's figurative of Israel or it's figurative of Moses. But surely it can't be a literal, actual, you know, The Messiah dying, that concept just did not register with it. It still doesn't register them with them. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a veil lies over their heart and they just can't get a clue that the Messiah actually had to die. And if they would sit back and think about it, that they are sinners and that sins need atonement and that animals can't make a perfect atonement substitute for humans, they would realize a perfect human has to die in order to make atonement for sins. And of course, perfect humans are exceedingly hard to find. And so you'd almost need somebody who was like God incarnate. And of course, that we know is true. So what's neat about this is Jesus says specifically that it, it is fulfilled in me and refers to me. He says it will have its fulfillment. In other words, I am going to die. And then I won't be with you, is the whole point, physically with you. Now, you say, okay, well, what can we learn in verses 35 to 38 about prayer, since prayer is not specifically mentioned, and uh, obviously it's mentioned in the following context, which we shall see. I thought, well, what does this teach us here? Well, I think it teaches us this. 
We know that the scriptures say that we are to pray about all things and we need to pray things like give us this day our daily bread, pray for jobs, pray for work, pray for health, pray for safety. It's okay. We see examples of that, right? And in, in, throughout the scriptures. But notice here, there is, there's, there's these people a lot of times who in their minds, there is a tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. There are some people who have this idea that because God is sovereign, I don't need to do anything. Actually, if I do something, it's actually an insult to God. It is denying grace, which of course is erroneous and false. God's grace is given to us so that we can do, act. And God is sovereign, but his sovereignty always works with human responsibility. It does not negate it. You know, a, a man, let's say, with a, a wife and four children cannot say, well, you know, God is sovereign and he's promised to provide for me in the scriptures. Therefore, I'm not going to work. I'll just lay on the couch, watch TV and play video games because God has said he's going to provide. No, that is false. Why? Because God's sovereignty works through means. And the standard means that God commands in his word to provide for us is get a job or two jobs or three jobs if necessary to work hard with your own hands and provide for yourself because that's how he sovereignly provides for us. Now, granted, if we can't work, we're sick or injured or whatever, then God's sovereignty kicks in through other people who work. But that's how it is. So I think the neat thing we can learn here is though God is sovereign, and though Jesus was was leaving them, he still said, be responsible. Get the money, get the sack, get the sword for protection. Get it. It's not just pray and... Let go and let God. You need to be like military general Oliver Cromwell said. Have faith in God and keep your powder dry. Trust God and keep your powder dry. Of course, his Puritan forces were virtually unstoppable. And they prayed a lot of times before every battle for three or four hours. They would pray fervently and go out and they always won. But... As Cromwell rightly said, it's not just have faith and let go in God, but keep your powder dry. In other words, pray and be responsible. Secondly, we learn from the text here, pray to escape temptation. Look at verses 30, or verse 39. And he came out and proceeded as is his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples also followed him. So they left the upper room. They've gone down, John, I think 18, one says in the Kidron Valley, they're going up the Western slope of the Mount of Olives. Now, every day before that, they went up over the Mount of Olives and they were staying in Bethany. But this night they're not going to because Jesus is going to be arrested. But apparently Jesus made it a habit when they left the Temple Mount and they were going to go to this garden that was on that Western slope and he would pray there. And Judas knows this, and that's why Judas is going to bring the mob to that place, because he knows Jesus will be there praying, because it was his habit. So that's what's happening. Look at verse 40. And when he arrived at that place, that is the Garden of Gethsemane, the other Gospels tell us, he said, pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
So Luke tells us that Jesus said this twice. It's also recorded down in verse 46. And as verse 53 indicates, the hour of darkness is going to be coming upon them. So you say, well, so what does it mean, pray to escape temptation? Well, it means just that. Temptation comes upon believers pretty much incessantly, doesn't it? But if you're tired and you're in a very stressful situation, more temptations abound, don't they? Satan sees that as a weakness. Have you ever discovered how when you're tired, you're kind of grumpy? Short with your wife or short with your kids? Why? Because when you're more tired, you're more vulnerable to temptation. Jesus knows he's going to be arrested. He has quoted them, strike, you know, the shepherd and the the sheep will be scattered. He knows that's going to happen. And so he knows they're going to be distressed because Jesus is going to be arrested and then crucified. So he knows all of these things. So he's saying, guys, pray. They've had a long day. It's been Passover. They had to crunch through the crowds and sacrifice the lamb and set the meal up in the upper room. And they've just been feasting and they've just had wine. And it's the end of the day. It's bedtime. It's night. And Jesus is going to be praying for some three hours in this garden and they're toast. And then he's going to be, he's going to be arrested. And Jesus says, listen, guys, pray. Pray that you might not enter temptation. They don't really get like, you know, what's the, like the big deal. They don't realize tonight is the night. And so they end up falling asleep as we shall see in a moment. But this is really Jesus is giving the same advice he gave, for instance, in Matthew 6, 13, where he says that we should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or as David prayed in Psalm 19, verse 13, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. We need to pray. Pray that we not enter into temptation. Now, someone might argue, well, God is sovereign and God will keep me from evil. And you know what? There's all those promises in there. But... Also in there is that God, though he is sovereign and he has promised these things, has also in his sovereignty told us what to do. You know, some people say things like, well, listen, um, since God is sovereign, since he has declared the end from the beginning, why even pray? Because we, he already knows what he's going to do and nobody can stop him. Well, uh, the reason we pray is because God's sovereign. I mean, why pray to a God who isn't sovereign? Why pray to a God for things you can't do yourself if he can't do them either? Prayer presupposes that God is sovereign. And God not only gives us the desire to pray when we are born again, but he gives us the command to pray just in case we don't want to. You know, if you're in sin... Sometimes going to God, we play this little mental game. We become kind of mentally bipolar. Well, I better not pray today because I'd have to deal with my sin before God. And I know I'm going to have to confess this thing. And it's going to be very uncomfortable. And so maybe I should just like pretend like God doesn't exist and not make a connection there. I mean, you know how it is. And so God gives us the command to pray because we need to pray. Now, granted, when we're doing well, and if we know the Lord, we will be praying. So it's just natural for Christians to do that. But just because God is sovereign doesn't mean that we need to not pray. We pray because he is sovereign. 
Now, would you agree that God doesn't want you to sin? You say, well, uh, yeah, he doesn't want me to sin. And um, would you agree that God is able to help you not sin and to arrange circumstances that you don't sin? And we know that God never wants us to sin. You say, yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, well, let me ask you this. Do you ever sin? Yeah. Guess whose fault that is? That's not God's fault. It's your fault. And if you look at your life and you're struggling with some sort of besetting sin in your life and you realize, you know what? This sin has me by the throat. I can't get away from it. I'm not strong enough to get away. I've tried. I've tried to to do it on my own. I've tried to make my own way. I've tried to reform my own heart. Listen, you need to pray that you might not enter into temptation. And then act. Not just pray. Jesus doesn't say, listen, all you need to do is pray. Everything will be great. Prayer is part of the solution to not succumbing to temptation. It's a necessary part of the solution, but it's not the entire solution. You also need to do whatever else the word of God tells you to do to avoid temptation. You know, you must flee immorality. You must see evil coming and hide yourself from it. You must hide God's word in your heart so that you don't sin against you. You know, if you have a donut addiction, you don't go to the donut shop to have your quiet times. You don't sit around there among the bear claws and the old fashioned donuts and the powdered ones saying, oh, do not eat those. You see, that's putting yourself into a position where you're going to be tempted. You know you're going to be tempted, but the word of God says the, the, the prudent person sees evil coming and they hide themselves from it. But the naive go on and pay the penalty and you don't want to do that. So you don't go there. Pray, yes, and then don't go to the donut shop. Both and, not either or. J.C. Ryle in his call to prayer makes this acute observation. Have you forgotten the lives that many live? Can we really believe that people are praying against sin night and day when we see them plunging into it? Can we suppose they pray against the world when they are entirely absorbed and taken up with its pursuits. Can we think they really ask God for grace to serve him when they do not show the slightest interest to serve him at all? Oh, no. It is plain as daylight that the great majority of people either ask nothing of God or do not mean what they say when they do not, when they do ask, which is the same thing. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer, end quote. And so it is. You see somebody, I'm having a struggle. I'm having a struggle. Listen, you know, you know that person can't be consumed with praying against that and then doing that. I mean, have you ever tried like having communion with God while you're sinning? It just does not work. You got to shut that line down. You got to hang up on God. To pursue your sin. So pray that you may not enter temptation. And then do everything else the word of God tells you to avoid sin. 
Third, pray to God in secret. Look at verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. I don't know how much a stone's throw is. I could probably throw about 300 feet or something. But if, you know, the average person, maybe 150 or 200, I don't know. Um, but whatever, uh, whatever that is, a ways away. Uh, Matthew Mar- and Mark tell us that he took Peter, James, and John with him, kind of the, the innermost circle of the, the disciples. And so he went 100, 150 feet away or so, and he prayed. Why? Because he wanted to be alone. He wanted to have some isolation. It seems that if you read all the accounts that he even separated himself from the three uh, that he called to go with him, but they were close enough that they could hear him pray. And we'll find out why uh, in a moment. But Jesus was practicing what he taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Remember when he said, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is secret and in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Prayer is between you and God. And so when you pray, really, you need to get alone with God. Now, this is hard in this society. There is so much noise and so much distraction that it's really difficult. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I could just walk. I would just, we lived right in the border of the forest, uh, national forest. And so I would just walk into the woods. I would never have a single distraction unless I saw like an animal or something. But, you know, there was just quiet outside, no people, no cell phones, no internet, no knock at the door, nothing, just pure walking and talking with God. It's very wonderful. Um, it's very hard to get that in the city. You have to kind of work hard at getting alone to pray. But this is really God's way of dealing with trials. Uh, Psalm 50 verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Or James 5:13, is anyone among you suffering? Then let him pray. So you get alone. Have times when it's just you and God in prayer. Spurgeon said, Quote, secret devotion is the very essence, evidence, and barometer of a vital experimental religion. Burn here the fat of your sacrifices. Let your closet seasons be, if possible, regular, frequent, and undisturbed. Effectual prayer avails much. Have you nothing to pray for? Let us suggest the church, the ministry, your own soul, your children, your relations, your neighbors, your country, the cause of God and truth in the world. Let us examine ourselves on this important matter. Do we engage with lukewarmness and private devotion? Is the fire of devotion burning dimly in our hearts? Do the chariot wheels drag heavily? If so, let us be alarmed at the sign of decay. Let us go with weeping and ask for a spirit of grace and supplications. Let us set apart special seasons for extraordinary prayer. For if this fire should be smothered beneath the ashes of worldly conformity, it will lessen our influence both in the church and in the world, end quote. Believer, make secret prayer the backbone of your prayer life. If you find that you almost always pray and only pray when you're around other people, that is a sign of serious danger. You're praying for men, not God. Four, pray to God about all things. This is, this is, this is amazing. Look at the middle of verses, uh, verse 41. And he knelt down and began to pray, verse 42, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now consider what Jesus has just asked. Does Jesus know he has to die? Yeah. Did the prophet say he was going to die? Yeah. 
Did Jesus himself tell his disciples all along, I must go to Jerusalem, be betrayed in the hands of of men and be crucified? Yeah. So then why does Jesus ask this? If you are willing, remove this cup from me. And there is such a cool lesson to learn here. Sometimes we may believe something to be true. We may understand something a certain way or be certain that something's going to come to pass. We just know it is. Someone is going to die. Uh, the doctors say some unborn child is going to be, uh, you know, born with this terrible disease and d- die shortly thereafter. Or your boss says, listen, we're going to have to lay you off or making things. It's just a matter of time. And they've told you so and you know it's going to happen. But hear me now. Listen to this. Even when things seem certain. Even when things seem unavoidable, even when God has spoken, it's still okay to ask for something different. You think, well, Jack, that sounds like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus prayed, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus is getting ready to bear the sins of the world and die by crucifixion. How many people who the doctor said, oh, this person's going to die, lived after people prayed? How many unborn babies that needed to be aborted because uh, they were going to have some sort of low quality of life or die shortly after death were born perfectly healthy or lived for a long time? And brought great blessing to their families. How many people have known they would be most certainly fired and are still working? Do you remember in Exodus chapter 32 verses 9 and 10? When God talked to Moses right after Aaron and the people of Israel made the golden calf and worshipped it. Let me remind you. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, that I may make of, and I will make of you a great nation. Now, let me ask you, are the Jews still around? Yeah. Well, then what happened? Moses prayed. Do you remember when God told Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to walk through the city, and I want you to tell them, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Was it overthrown? No. What happened? The people prayed. Somebody came up after the second service and said, well, Jack, I feel really uncomfortable with that, you know, praying against what God has said in his word. I said, well, Jesus does go on to say, which will look according to my will, if you are willing. But how, what, if, what if Moses didn't pray? And what if the people of Nineveh didn't repent? See, the only way we know that what was revealed could be altered is that what? People prayed. Like five or six examples of this that I found in the scriptures. And I just want to encourage you here. Sometimes you may be thinking, you know, it seems this is going to happen. It seems God's word is, is saying this. But Lord, if you can make it happen a different way and still be faithful and me still be holy and still work it out. If you could do it, that would be great. And you know what? God may be waiting for you to pray that prayer so that he can bless you and still be faithful to his word. So don't, don't be hesitant like, well, God could never. 
Oh, yes, he could. He can do things you've never even thought of. You know, who would have thought, okay, you take a couple million people, take them out into the desert where there's no food or water. How long can two million people survive in the desert with no food and water? 40 years. <laughs> At least, if God's on their side. See, that, that's an impossibility. You know, after being swallowed by a fish for three days, how many people then can show up to preach? No one, but it happened. You know, the resurrection, think about the resurrection. Jesus gets killed. It's over, not. He's resurrected. I mean, who would think of that? God, but not you. And so you feel free, ask for whatever you want. Ask for whatever you want. Say, Father, if you are willing, if you could do it. Now, of course, you know, uh, just let me commit adultery this week or let me rob a bank this week. Or if it be your will, you know, can I be a drug dealer for just one more week? No. <laughs> Don't bother with that. But a lot of times God says things and we're pretty sure we understand what it means. And we don't really understand how he could maybe make it work. But just say, Lord, I don't know. It seems this is clear to me. But if you could do it another way, great. If not, our next point, pray according to God's will. Notice he says, if you are willing, verse 42. And then after he asks that the cup be removed, he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. This is really the key to all prayer. To make sure that you're seeking the will of God. Not your will, but God's will. And of course, when you know God and you know he's perfect and you know he knows what's best, you want his will. Why? Because his will is always best for you. And so if you are praying and you think this seems like it would be best for me, still add to there, yet not my will, but yours be done. Because God may have something very painful for you. That's a greater blessing that makes you more into the image of Christ that causes you to suffer for your good rather than have ease for a curse. And so this is an important lesson to learn to pray, pray about whatever you want, but make sure you add on there. I'm looking for your will, your desire. Thomas Watson, who died actually in secret prayer. Wouldn't that be a way to go? They went in there to his little secret prayer chamber, and there he was, crumpled over dead. He said, many pray, let this cup pass away, but few pray, thy will be done. Isn't that true? How many times say, Lord, could you do this? Could you do this? Could you do this? And after you pray, you forgot to put on that really important part. Why? Because you don't really want God's will, because God's will might not be your will, and so you really want your own way. Just put it on the end because you want God's will, because God's will is best for you. First John five fourteen reminds us, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We must always submit ourselves to God's will, knowing his way is best. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I mean, consider this. Consider that Jesus was God in human flesh. He was 100% God, 100% man. He was impeccable. He could not sin, but he prayed that he would not sin. 
Jesus was perfectly faithful, but he prayed for strength to be faithful. And may this be a rebuke to those who try to hide behind the sovereignty of God and say, listen, we don't need to pray because God is sovereign. Listen, Jesus was perfect and he prayed for help. That should teach us something. God already knows who's going to be saved. Then why witness or pray for the lost? Because God uses prayer as part of the means to save the elect. It's his mechanism. So use it. You might have asked you, well, is Jesus going to return again? Yes. Do you think it's fairly certain? Like on a scale of one from ten, would you use like a three or a four? No, a ten. Well, then why pray, come, Lord Jesus, come? We know he's coming. So we pray, come. We align ourselves with the will of God. That is what God wants us to do. So ask for whatever you wish, but make sure you pray the line that few like to pray. Yet thy my will, but yours be done. Six, pray fervently. No, uh, I just want to make a comment here. Now we're going to look at verses 43 and 44. This is one of those rare texts in the Bible that there is disagreement among the ancient manuscripts. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, what, what it means is, is that there are some very ancient manuscripts, really old manuscripts, and some of them contain verses 43 and 44 and others do not. And so what does that mean? Well, it means one of two things. Either one, it was in the original. It was, it's supposed to be in there. It's inspired. And some scribe who thought it unworthy of, um, uh, of Jesus, oh, maybe that it was overemphasizing his humanity above his deity, decided to take it out. Which to me seems very unlikely because, you know, why? I mean, scribes, they were so fanatic about copying the Bible. Why would they just say, you know, I don't like these two verses. I'll extract them. I mean, it just seems very unlikely. The next thing is, is that they don't belong in there, but some scribe made a comment in a margin. Now, you can imagine what would happen. Let's say um, somebody pins out a Bible in, you know, 120 A.D. And um, they, they make a whole copy of, you know, the Gospel of Luke. And somebody, you know, comes along and they make, they make a comment in the margin that Jesus prayed fervently because of other texts. We'll look at it goes. And, and that he, you know, he, he sweated like great drops of blood and they kind of just, you know, get a little fanciful there. Then that, that guy dies and the manuscript gets passed on and then some other guy comes along and goes, you know, I need to make a copy of Luke. And he looks in there and goes, hmm, I wonder why that's in the margin. I wonder if that should be in the text or not. Well, certainly Jesus was fervent in prayer and the whole sweating like drops of blood seems pretty bad. It seems like, I mean, it doesn't seem like totally unrealistic and maybe we should put it in there and I hate to leave something out that should be in there and I mean, it doesn't change any major doctrine, so maybe I'll just stick it in there. So now all of a sudden he puts it in there. Now everything that's copied from that time on has it in. So you have these manuscripts, some that don't have it, some that do have it. And you say, well, well, Jack, which one is it? I don't know. So let's talk about it. Okay. So it says now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, kind of like what happened to Elijah. Jesus knew what lay before him. Verse 44 says he was in agony and he needed strength to obey the father's will. 
Jesus uh, asked that the cup, um, which is uh, in the Bible, is 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 an expression which speaks of someone's destiny, something that's destined to happen to somebody, that 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 destiny be changed or altered or passed from him. But of course, it was not the Father's will that that cup pass from him, but he was going to have to drink it. So he is praying fervently. Look at verse 44. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Why was he in agony? Because, oh, he had to be abused, falsely tried, accused, slapped, beat, tortured to death and hung on a cross. And while on the cross, carry the sins of the world and for the first time be separated from the father and all hell is against him. That's all. And so, yeah, he's, he's fervent in prayer. He's intense in prayer. Look at the middle of verse 44. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And I just want you to know this little phrase here. Commentators and preachers love this phrase. In this questionable part of Luke. It's like it's, it only appears in Luke. It's like, yes, his sweat. He sweated blood. And you know what? There is a rare disease, you know, hemosomptosis, um, <laughs> big word I don't pronounce. Anyways, there is a disease that only a handful of people have ever been documented as actually having when under great stress, they actually, their capillaries burst and they're able to sweat. Well, we aren't going to say that Jesus is disease, but let's just say for a minute, it's quote, medically possible that someone could be, you know, so intensely prayer that their blood pressure would so amp up that it would rupture their capillaries and so they'd sweat with but yeah, yeah, I think it's possible. Um, do I think that's what happened? No. Why? Because notice the text doesn't say he sweated blood or sweated drops of blood, but his sweat became like, like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. I know it's not as sensational and the wow effect is cut down, <laughs> but still... It does teach us the same thing, that he prayed so intensely... He was drenched with sweat. Now you say, well, how do we know that? You know, what if this text is not supposed to be there because of Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, which says in the days of his flesh, speaking of Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So in other words, Jesus prayed with loud crying and tears. He cried out to God. Thomas Watson has said, quote, incense without fire makes no sweet smell. Prayer without fervency is like incense without fire. Christ prayed with strong crying and tears. Crying prayers prevail. When the heart is inflamed in prayer, a Christian is carried away as if it were in a fiery chariot up to heaven, end quote. He goes on to say, Quote, the devil, if he cannot hinder us from duty, will hinder us in duty. When he comes before the Lord, he is at our right hand to resist us. Like when a man is going to write and another stands at his elbow to jog him so that he cannot write evenly. Satan will set vain objects before the fancy to cause a diversion. The devil does not oppose formality, but fervency. If he sees that we are setting ourselves in good earnest to seek God, he will be whispering things in our ears so that we can scarcely attend to what we are doing, end quote. And everybody who's a Christian knows that. I mean, you go to pray and what happens? You're thinking about the car and the pot roast and everything. 
your bank account, everything. I mean, it's just, it's like you, you can have just undistracted, perfect concentration reading the paper, watching TV, reading your favorite magazine, you know, enjoying entertainment. As soon as you begin to pray, the whole world falls apart. That's like, ah, you can see why Luther grabbed the ink well and pitched it against the wall. Everybody knows that. Satan does not want you praying. If your prayers are not being answered, take them out of the freezer. Put some heat to them. Heat them up with earnest pleading and fervent supplication and loud crying and tears and see if that doesn't bring better results. Jesus prayed with great fervency and so should we. So avoid praying like you're bored to tears. Seven, pray ignoring the flesh. Look at verse 45. When he rose from prayer and just stop there, we already read in verse 41, I didn't make a big deal out of it, but in verse 41, it says Jesus knelt down to pray. Now he's rising up from having kneeled, knelt down. Matthew 26, 39 and Mark 14, 35 says he also planted his face in the ground. So he knelt down and just did a face plant in the dirt. Why? Why? Think about that. Why would Jesus, who at other times we know from the scriptures prayed, standing up and prayed in a lot of different ways, why the face plant kneeling here? Now, if you ever grew up Roman Catholic, how many of Roman Catholic grew up in the Roman Catholic Church? Raise your hand. Yeah, we got some here. Yeah. Um, and you had kneeling benches. You might remember that time when you were sitting there kneeling, thinking to yourself, when is this prayer going to get over? My knees are killing me. There you go. Jesus knelt with his face to the ground. He prayed in other positions too, but you know what's interesting? When you kneel, you're not falling asleep because it hurts. It hurts. You know, many like to pray themselves asleep and Satan is glad to help them. Satan would, that's one way to get Satan to work from you, for you, you know that, is just say, well, I guess I'm going to pray for an hour before I fall asleep. You'll be asleep in 30 seconds and he'll help you because he'd rather have you sleep than pray. And if you've ever tried praying in bed, you know it's true. Or in your easy chair while lying on the couch, sleep will come upon you like an armed man. And this is why getting on your knees to pray can be so helpful. It's not commanded. It's not necessary. We don't have to do it. But we find as we look through the scriptures that godly people did this. Now you may be thinking to yourself, but Jack, if I'm old, if I knelt down, I might not ever be able to get up again. I'm going to have to phone there to call the paramedics or, you know, it would be, I would hurt so bad. My knees are about to have had operations, you know, I have issues with my knees and you know, you, I, you couldn't expect me that that would be, it would be so distracting. But let me ask you this. Do you think it is better to be in pain praying or sleeping? Do you think it is more likely that you could actually learn how to pray even though in pain or that you can learn how to pray while sleeping. There's a reason why godly men and women have knelt to pray throughout the centuries. 
Solomon did it, 1 Kings 8.45. Daniel did it, Daniel 6.10. Peter did it, Acts 9.40. And Paul and the Ephesian elders did it in Acts 20, verse 36. Kneeling for God is a physical act of humility where you bow. I think for Americans, like, well, no, I'm not bowing before anybody. I, I don't even got to bow before the president. Now, if you go to a country where they have kings, the whole bowing thing is like, well, yeah, that's what you do. But here it's like, well, I'm not bowing. Maybe we should. I think I told you uh, in the... When we talked about uh, last October, we were doing the Scottish Reformation for Reformation Month about Samuel Rutherford. He was a very godly Puritan man, and and uh, he sometimes prayed all night. He would, you know, go into his house and get down on the hardwood floor, and he would pray. He wouldn't be able to sleep at night, so he'd just find another room. His wife would wake up, and it'd be in the middle of winter. It'd be cold. And he'd go in there, and there he would be, just in his little nightshirt on his knees, praying fervently to God. And she would get a coat, cover him, and go to bed and wake up in the morning, and there he'd be, praying. Now, I want to give you an assignment this week. I want you to try two things. One, I want you to try kneeling on the carpet and praying. And then as you're sitting there kneeling... You can even do the face plan if you want. Might be good for you. Talk to God. If your knees hurt, talk to God about it. Say, Lord, you know, I'm, my knees are hurting right now. And uh, it's interesting that Jesus did this. And a lot of the other godly people have done this. And, and my knees hurt. Now, why is this good for me? But notice, you won't be sleeping. Maybe get a chair. Put your Bible on the chair and then kneel down in front of it. I have a friend who, who likes to do it that way. He, he kneels down and he puts the Bible on the chair. And so it's right there and he can kneel and still read it as he prays. So I want you to do that on the carpet. And then I want you to find some concrete, a hardwood floor or dirt and do this. Now, I don't want you to do this in front of anyone. No, don't let anybody see you do this. If you have to, go into the garage, close the door, and do it. Just bring the thing with you so you can open back up. But yeah, pray. Just try it. Try and do it 10 or 15 minutes each way on a little bit of padding and no padding. And I want you to talk to God as you do this. And even if it hurts, talk to God about it. And then next week when you come back, I want you to talk with people at Calvary Bible Church about your experience. You think it's a good idea? I think it's something that you maybe should do on a more regular basis? In secret prayer, do you think that it's really better to pray in your easy chair with your cup of tea and a nice pillow or to be on your knees? Is there an advantage here or not? It's your homework for this week. Come back and talk about it. Look at the middle of verse 45. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Now, this is interesting because Luke is the only one who tells us specifically they were asleep because of sorrow. Um, the other gospel uh, writer says that they were, their eyes were very heavy and Jesus came and said, why are you sleeping? And they didn't know how to answer. Mark even says he came back three times. The first time after an hour and three times may tell us that he was praying for three hours to the father and came back after each hour to say, hey, how come you're sleeping? Now, What's interesting here is that 
the disciples kept falling asleep. Now, what does that tell us? They were not on their their knees. Because if you're, if you're on your knees and you're praying and you fall asleep, what happens? You wake up when you hit. <laughs> when you fall over. When you clunk over, it's like, ow. Um, and then you get back up and you keep praying. So what's interesting here is the disciples all kept falling asleep and falling asleep. But Jesus did not as he sat there and knelt with his face to the ground. So that's why I would encourage you, if you're, if you've never done this, if it's not your habit, try it. Just try it. And don't do it for anybody else. Just do it before God. And so what does all this teach us? I think it teaches us this. Ignore the flesh when you pray. Your body wants pampering. Have you, you noticed that? It likes ease. It likes comfort. It likes too much sleep and too much food. It likes the path of least resistance, the least amount of sweat, the most amount of air conditioning or blankies or whatever. I mean, it wants you to take care of it and to give it preference over what is right. And so whatever is necessary, you need to make sure that you learn to ignore the flesh and how it don't let your body tell you how to pray or where to pray. You tell yourself where you're going to pray and say, tell your body to chill out. You know, when you go to Israel, for instance, you, and you go to the wailing wall, there'll be some people in prayer, most of are on their knees, but all of them will be kind of doing this, shaking, bobbing back and forth. Why? Because they're trying to stay awake. By, by moving back and forth, it keeps you awake because you have to constantly, you're moving. When you hold still is when you get comfortable. If you haven't noticed that, when you started to pray and you woke up in the morning, that's what happened. You got comfortable and then you slept all night. Yeah, that's what happens. And so, you know, there's people who do certain things um, to to keep themselves awake. One time I was laying concrete blocks all day in front of our house and and uh, I was really tired and I came in and had this really yummy dinner and then I took a nice hot shower and then I was sitting in my easing chair and I was, man, I was, I was wasted and we were having our little family prayer time. And uh, so my wife, as I tell my wife, why don't you pray? And then the kids and all finished. Well, I heard my wife pray, but that's it. <laughs> and I woke up to my kids laughing hysterically. Dad, you fell asleep in prayer. And of course, they never let me forget about it because I had given them many lectures on prayer is serious. We're talking to God here, you know. It's like, man, you don't mess around when we're praying. We're talking to God Almighty here. This is nothing to be goofing around. We're playing footsies under the table and dinking with each other's hands. Man, this is serious, serious. And what happens? <sighs> man, I'm out. Just like the disciples. I'm sure we can all relate to that at one time or another. But I think there's a good lesson here that if you're finding that you can't sustain yourself in prayer and focus and you're sleepy or whatever, then get on your knees, stand up, bob, you know, do something. You won't fall asleep standing up. You'll hit the ground and wake back up again. And uh, then you can stand up again or whatever it takes. But don't let your flesh tell you how to pray. And that don't let it convince you that the most comfortable position is the best position of prayer. Because that is not true. It's the worst. So pray and be responsible. Pray to escape temptation. Pray to God in secret. Pray about all things. Pray according to God's will. Pray fervently and pray ignoring the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we were able to learn from this text and Jesus and his prayer life. Father, I pray that as we look at 
these things in just the final uh, hours of Jesus' life that we would want to be like him. Father, help us to be men and women of prayer. Help us to seek you earnestly, fervently. Father, may we make whatever adjustments we need to make in our lives so that we engage in corporate prayer, so that we engage in secret prayer, that we have times of undistracted devotion to you and that we would fight against the flesh and pour out our hearts to you in prayer. May we do our homework this week and all of us get down on our knees in secret before you and pray that we might consider what Jesus did and other godly people have done and why they did it. And Father, may we come back to bless each other in what we have learned. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.